Well, good morning. I'm Bill Bider. I do serve as one of the elders here. And uh, if you've been around very long, you know that maybe three or four times a year, you will see me up here teaching on Sunday morning. And uh, as I've said before, I'm kind of the C team to give a break to some of the other guys. But I'm happy to be able to share this morning. When you only teach a little bit like I do, uh, I usually know my date well in advance. And I usually have a lot of time to prepare. In this case, was no exception. And I originally thought that what I wanted to talk about was what you see up there on the top left-hand side of the slide. That I, I was planning on a message for what I'm thinking of as overloaded Christians. How do we prioritize, manage our time, balance our time? What would God's word say to us in this area? But the more I started studying that, which really goes back a couple months now, the more I learned that our busyness is a symptom of a bigger, more serious problem that most of us face, and that is idolatry. The reason we're so busy is we have a lot of idols in our lives. And so I decided to shift my focus and focus on what I'm terming modern-day idolatry. And I think all of us could admit that there are things that take our time away from our relationship with God in ways that it, they shouldn't. Uh, and we're going to talk about a lot of what those kinds of things are, and then near the end we're going to talk about what is it we can really do to try to help this problem in our lives. Um, idolatry is a topic that you've all heard many times talked about, and it's very old with respect to teaching that you're going to find, and I have quotes from two very notable Christians up here that talk about just how prevalent idolatry is in the lives of people in general, and that includes Christians. We are not immune from the concept of idolatry. Dwight Moody was an evangelist in the 1800s, and you probably have heard of him. He said this, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. And I would add a little to that. I would say whatever interferes or impacts your relationship with God is an idol. And then John Calvin, probably 300 years before Moody, said every one of us is, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols. Now today when we think of idols, uh, you may think of the golden calf or wooden statues or things like that, and, and we're too sophisticated to have those kinds of idols. But we do have things that get in the way of our relationship with God, and we call them hobbies or interests or maybe even responsibilities. And those responsibilities can be everything from work to church responsibilities and other kinds of things. But, but we don't want to think of them as idols because as we will see, that is a serious sin in God's eyes. But there's something about human nature that really causes us to put our hope and trust in idols. We have an inherited sin nature that gives us a tendency to love things or even ideas or institutions more than God or to at least get in the way of that relationship that, that we really should have with him. And why is that? Well, 
we can feel them, see them, get immediate feedback from them, and of course we've got spiritual forces of darkness that are working on us, trying to make idols in our lives and make those idols more important in our lives. So when we think about what the, more about what the definition of idolatry really is, I, I turn to Romans 1.25, and although this doesn't really define idolatry, it does give us an idea of what the Bible thinks of idolatry, and it kind of describes a state of idolatry, where it says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Well, you notice that Paul, in writing this, used the plural, served created things. And I think that plural is applicable to us today. There's likelihood that there is more than one thing in your life that could be characterized as an idol, not just one that competes with the God. Although, as we will see, there, there are so many versions of what idols are. Um, it can be so many things, and we will talk a little bit more about what some of those are, but a key aspect of idolatry is really that we worship and serve those things that have taken the place of the Creator who alone deserves our praise and glory. And uh, whether we admit it or not, if we've made things or ideas or whatever it is into idols, we will worship and serve those things. That's just the way it works. And as we will see, this is exactly what Jesus taught, and we'll turn to some of his teachings. I've got a little story I want to tell, and the people who are shown on here are not the people, they're not the real pictures of the people that the story is about, but it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what an example of modern-day idolatry can look like. I have a friend that I work with who uh, is a Christian. He attended a Bible study that I have held in work for 14 years. He came regularly. He's a father who cares about his family and his kids. He works hard. But he has, as all of us do, some things that draw our attention, perhaps attention away from the Lord. And you see it here. I'll tell you the story. He thinks it's important to make sure that he has accumulated guns and ammunition. His reasons I won't go into. But one day, he had them all scattered out on the floor as he sat on, he came to me. Let me say this, he actually came to me because he considered me a bit of a teacher, mentor, having attended my Bible study for so long, and he wanted to talk to me about what his wife identified as a problem. Because she came home one day and found him sitting on the living room floor with all his ammunition out in front of him and the guns out in front of him, and to her, it appeared as though he was worshiping his ammunition and guns that were sitting in front of him, kind of cross-legged with his back to her coming in the door. And that was more than she could handle. You know, that just didn't look right because they are a Christian family. And so um, he approached me and wanted to talk about this. And I won't go into the details of the interaction we had, but obviously, he was giving a little bit too much um, value to his guns and ammo. And that's just a little picture of what we might have established 
as something that is too important in our lives. So what is yours? Yours may not be guns and ammo. Your idol may be your new car or pickup. It might be your home and how well you want to take care of it. I'm kind of pointing at myself right now on that one and how much time I spend on caring for my lawn and flowers and all those things. Could be your family, your favorite sports team. Your family itself can be an idol. Your own body can be an idol whether it's what you eat or exercise or health things, all kinds of things that you're doing, you're worshiping your own body. Could be your cell phone. That may have hit a nerve with a few of you. And God forbid it could be something really dangerous like sexual addictions. Now these are mostly material things here that I'm talking about, but idols can also be things that are intangible. It can be the government who we place our security in. Some politician who we placed so much hope in. It can be modern psychiatry, it can be medicine, it could be our scientific advancements which seem to have solved every problem that's ever faced us. It could be our own job. It can be even things that are more far out there, like horoscopes, where we look at it every day. It could be some teacher who we believe has really got the answers and we turn to them. So idolatry can involve things that are much different, but there's one thing not on here because I really didn't know how to show this with a picture, but probably the most dangerous type of idol is when we take the God of the Bible, the true God as, as fully described in the Bible, and we turn that God into something different that is more acceptable to us. And, and what is probably the most common of these things, and even in the church, is a God who is so loving that he doesn't any longer give significance to judgment, hell, and all of those kinds of things. And we see that in the teachings of people like Rob Bell, who talks about really no one goes to hell because everybody has a chance at the time of death to make that choice for God. And Love Wins is the name of his book. So that kind of idol, that false God that we've created, the God we want more, is probably the most dangerous of all. So this, this is just a little bit of intro on the topic. But can you honestly say you agree with what the psalmist David says here in this psalm? I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Or do I have competing forces at work in my life, my life that is pointing me in different directions or separating me from the Lord? Are we placing too much trust and hope in other things on a daily basis? So really my goal today is for all of us to recognize that we do struggle in this area. We have placed too much hope and trust in things other than the Lord. We do look for our joy or uh, our satisfaction, things we look most forward to. And, and we'll see a little bit of these ideas repeated uh, a little later uh, when we start applying this, but really letting go of our idols and um, that's my goal today, because 
we're all in different stages of idolatry, but I, I think we all, at least a little bit, struggle with the concept of idolatry. So let's look at uh, a couple familiar passages that relate to God's view of idolatry and just to see how serious it is and how difficult it is for us to deal with. Uh, the first one up there, we all know, it's the first of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is not ashamed here to call himself jealous. Now, God's jealousy is not the same as our human jealousy. To, when we are jealous, it normally would relate to something like envy or coveting. We want something that we don't have or own. We're jealous that someone else has something. That is sin. But God is jealous, and God cannot sin. It's impossible for God to sin. So his jealousy has to be something different than what we think of when we call our, well, when we call ourselves jealous about something or we see jealousy in someone else. But God is jealous in a different way. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it's worth mentioning. That God's jealousy is because, not because he wants something that he doesn't have or he needs. Instead, he desires the worship and service of the people that truly and rightly belong to him. If we are part of the family of God, we have been bought by the blood of Jesus. So we are purchased. We belong to God. He is jealous for us. He wants our worship and service because he already owns us. That is different than us being jealous for something that someone else has or owns that we would like. It is sinful the way we are jealous, but it is not sinful to want something that you already own. Jesus' words here are, uh, present a real dilemma for us, too, and it relates to idolatry. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon. Uh, meaning mainly material possessions. Paul also saw how serious a problem idolatry can be in Christians and gave this warning, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Now let's turn back to what Jesus said and, and look at it a little bit more. Jesus said very clearly that we cannot serve God and mammon. He taught no one, that's no one, that's every one of us, we cannot serve them both. Absolutely none. If Jesus' words here can be trusted, and I know they can, we all know they can, then it's impossible for us to have this kind of divided loyalties and love regarding who our master really is and who we're going to serve. Yet we behave as if it is possible most of us behave in a way that we think we are strong enough or able to love things that are in the material world and God together 
in this way that Jesus says is not possible. So what happens when we really try to serve two or more masters? We experience internal conflict, we're double-minded, we're tossed to and fro, we lack peace. And then ultimately, what happens? What Jesus says in the verse we just looked at, ultimately we choose one of those gods. And we choose one that we care the most about, it means the most about to us, and we serve that God and we will despise the other that gets in the way. Even though we may have gone down a path of choosing a God other than the true God, we may still pretend to be worshiping God. And those may not appear outwardly as lukewarm in their attempts to serve and worship. They may look fine to everyone around you, but God knows who have you chosen as first and is he second or third or somewhere down the line? Only God knows that answer. A couple other verses that are relevant here to help us understand what Jesus was teaching along these lines. He, again, he emphasized that our love for God must not be divided and our love for God must be greater than our love for anything else. And if we look at these two uh, verses out of Matthew, First chapter 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Matthew 10, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, Jesus, uh, in these two verses, you don't see what is said elsewhere that says, that if you love your mother or father, you're not worthy to follow after me in certain ways. And some, we've heard teaching on that. We know that Jesus does not teach us that we can only love God. We, we know from what Jesus says in Matthew 10, where he defines this more clearly, it's a comparative thing. Loving father or mother or son or daughter more than me is what he is saying is not acceptable. God should be first is what he is saying here. And John elaborates on this a little bit from a slightly different point of view in 1 John chapter 2 where he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And by the world, again, he's talking about those kind of things we looked at earlier that are material things or even ideas or self or whatever it is that, that we are loving uh, in place of God, the kind of love that should be reserved for God. Now, we can appreciate these things, we can enjoy these things, we can use them to accomplish tasks and serve others, but we shouldn't love them in a manner that gets in the way of our devotion and love and service for the Lord. Again, it's that comparative thing. Now, in 1 Kings 8, Solomon used another term here that I think is worth referring to where he said let your heart therefore be this was during the dedication of the temple okay that he made this statement as part of that let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God and walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments okay wholly devoted I'm going to move on here to what does that really mean we're called to be wholly devoted. 
And when we think of the term devotions, we often think of a time of day. We may reserve 30 minutes, an hour if we're really committed, where we have our devotions. Those devotions may be individual, they may be as a family, and that's what we think of more. But can holy devoted really mean that? Well, I don't think so. That time alone with God is really a good thing, but is that wholly devoted? Our 30 or 60 minutes that we may be spending? Um, Sometimes it's a really comfortable, easy time, isn't it? I mean, we, we have grown to love that time with the Lord, and that's good. We want to spend time with the Lord, but wholly devoted is more than cuddling up on your couch or your favorite chair with that warm cup of coffee as we enter into reading God's word. Yeah, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But is that wholly devoted? And I would say, again, I don't think so. In Romans chapter 12, Paul called us to be living sacrifices in our lives, meaning really ongoing actions of devotion and you know, taking less time really for self. Living sacrifice, that means we're, we're living for something more than self. And uh, Jesus, taught a lot on being the cost of discipleship, about taking up our cross daily. These are more in line with the concept of holy devoted that Solomon was talking about. We live in a way, and this strikes me hard personally. You know, I, I know I'm failing when it comes to the concept of being wholly devoted. And so I know I need to work on that. And I think you'll hear a lot of us up here teaching at times that when we prepare a message and present a message, we're speaking to ourselves often a whole lot because we've studied the issue a lot and we realize we fall so far short of what these calls are. And this holy devotion is one that really makes me clear that I'm not hitting the mark. So application, time for applying this and I've got three parts to this. I'll mention the three parts and then come back to each one as we kind of wrap up. Again, our purpose, letting go of the idols in our life. And it begins with a self-assessment. And we're going to look at some clues that perhaps we have made things into idols. We need to be willing and honest to admit it. Our spirit may be willing. The spirit in us is pushing us, prompting us. So the spirit is willing to do these things. But the flesh, which is drawn to idols, which is more satisfied by idols, is weak. And the next thing we need to do is we need to confess and repent that, yep, we are falling short in this area, and we need your help, Lord, to do better. And then transformation. And by transformation here, I, I'm not talking at all about uh, regeneration or um, the conversion at the time you were born again. By transformation, I am talking about that change that occurs in a believer who has the indwelling Holy Spirit in them to help us more permanently rid ourselves of these idols. Okay, from the assessment part of this, this first step in this process, 
There's a few little phrases up here on the screen as we examine ourselves, and I'm not going to try to answer every one about what would be good or bad, but as I go through these, think about what first pops into your mind. What is, what are you thinking of? Is it something of God or is it something of the world? My greatest joy is, I look forward to what? I daydream about what? I talk or read about what the most? I fear losing what? I spend most of my time and money on make your list. I grumble and complain about what things the most. I disobey God because of what? You know, idols can cause us to disobey God in related ways. And I lust after things forbidden by God because those idols translate into lusting. So as you think about these ideas and think about how you're probably, if you're honest with yourself, saying that my first answer to every one of these is not really God, his word, service for him, but something else, something else of the world. And you might be saying out there, give me a break. You know, um, God wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to get adequate rest. He wants us to carry out our responsibilities. That may be the first thing that pops into my mind here instead of spending time with him. Yes, he does want those things in our lives. He wants us to live abundant, joyful life, every one of us. But he doesn't want us to put those things of the world first ahead of him, as we have seen in his word. Jesus definitely expects us to be observant of the people in need, for when we do things for others, we are actually sometimes, as it says in Matthew 25, doing for him. But even though that is true, that we have to balance these things, where does our mind turn first when we ask ourselves these questions. What are we drawn to most? What do we care most about? What do we crave the most? And I think most of us would say that we're, we're trying to do what Jesus said we can't do. We're trying to say we can do it all. We can balance it all. We can love all these other things, give them their time and place, and we can love the Lord and give him his time and place. I think a lot of us believe that's possible. Um, R.C. Sproul, a lot of you may know him. He died a short time ago. He had a quote about our capacity to love God, and here's what he said. Loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love in our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. 
To love a holy God requires grace, grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our more abound, I'm not dying, means dying. I inserted that, dying souls, because I didn't know what that meant. Uh, but I wanted to put his accurate quote up. Our old sinful nature seeks comfort in our idols. And it's an unholy love, as he talks about here, that separates us from God. That unholy love for idols will separate us from God. Count on it. And we're incapable of loving this holy God outside of God's grace. We need him. We have him. We have his. If we have trusted in the Lord Jesus as Savior, we have him there with us. He has awakened our hearts. And we can do it because he first loved us. We have the power to do it. Okay, we turn to the second stage of application, confession and repentance. We've already admitted to ourselves that we struggle in this area. But now we need to confess that we have this problem and we need to repent of it. And Paul told us in his uh, letter, one of his letters to the Corinthians, that sorrowful repentance is really a natural, uh, it should naturally arise in us, in our hearts and minds, if we are believers. That indwelling Holy Spirit should result in sorrowful repentance when we know we have sinned. So, what happens? We confess that sin to God. And this great promise, that is in this verse in 1 John, we have for us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is a wonderful promise. If we believe we're struggling some with the sin of idolatry and we confess that sin, he will purify us. But you know, we have, us humans, have a tendency to return to our sin. It, it just happens. That's just the way it is. We, we have a moment of sorrowful repentance, and we confess it. And that sinful nature is still with us, and we return to our sins. So we have to pray other kinds of things as part of our whole feeling of repentance. Something like Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We know we will return to our sin. We need God's help to not return. If we pray, and this is part of what I'm wrapping up with too, the concept of praying God's scriptures. When sometimes we don't know how to pray, find a scripture that is relevant to what you want to pray about and turn it into a personalized prayer back to God. These are, that Psalm 51 and Psalms in general are really good when it comes to uh, being in the form of a prayer to God. And so we are, they are personalized automatically, but we can take other scriptures and personalize them as we pray to the Lord. And it becomes more meaningful. And we know God will hear our prayer when we pray his own scripture back to him because it's his will. Okay, the final step in this process is transformation. And again, as I have up there, pray the scriptures. You got to know the scriptures to pray the scriptures. You got to know where to look for them. 
These two psalms that are shown here are two examples, again, of the kinds of things we want to happen in us as we pray for transformation so that the idols become less important to us. In Psalm 42, it says, As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's what we want in every one of us. We want to pant for God. We want to thirst for God. And that includes, then, his word, because that's how he speaks to us, through his word. And Psalm 16 says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That's a good one to pray every single day. You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. What's that mean? All those idols that are getting in the way or trying to get into your life, you're telling him and admitting that that's not good in your life. Now, there's two other verses up here, and I put them up there as examples of verses that we can convert and personalize. John 4.14, that's the way, the way it's shown there is the way that you would find it in Scripture. But you could convert it to something like this. Jesus, I want to drink the living water that you give so I will never thirst. Or Jesus, please give me the living water so I will never thirst. And that Colossians 2 verse, Lord, help me to set my mind on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death, help me to put to death whatever belongs to my earthly nature, whether it's sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, all which is idolatry. Help me in this area. Turn these scriptures into personal petitions to the Lord. Wrapping up with a song we sang last week, and I'm going to turn this lyrics, this, this song, well, first let me say something else. Step back a minute. I'll, praying to the Lord, this time in the Word, all these things can bring lasting transformation so that we're not so readily returning to our sin. But a lot of you find songs and hymns of praise to be equally beneficial in this way. And this is one example of one of the songs that has lots of direct relevance to the concept of idolatry. This song here, this is just the chorus, was written by Helen Lemmel in 1922. And we're all familiar with it. We sang it towards the end last week. But I wanted to turn back to the chorus because it has such direct relevance to our idols. And I'm going to close here now by um, taking this chorus and putting it into the form of a prayer. And then we together are going to just sing the chorus before we enter into the full time of worship. Let's pray. Lord, help us to turn our eyes upon our Lord Jesus. Help us to look full in his wonderful face. For we know, Lord, that the things of the earth will grow strangely dim, all those idols in our lives, if we look at the glory and grace that he provides us and that light. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Turn your eyes upon
Jesus, look for.